Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. As a child at the age of five, R.J. Wyndham was the victim of a hit-and-run accident and left for dead in the middle of the street. He survived. At 26, he was the victim of the terrorist bombing of a train station where lives were lost and dozens were injured. He survived. And in 2019, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and survived that as well. Through his podcast, YouTube channel, and reading the pages of his books, that's plural, more than one, RJ is committed to ensuring that you understand that you are not alone. RJ, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. It is my pleasure. So I kind of don't know where to start with you because normally <laughs> I would say take us back to the beginning with cancer, but um, I'm going to skip the first and go to the second. Tell us about this bombing at a train station. Where were you? What was going on? Uh, tell us, start there. Um, at the time, I was flying a lot for business. So I had this brilliant idea that I would go ahead and get a sleeper car train and take that. Um, all the way out to uh, my final destination was Quebec City. And okay. uh, so I changed trains in uh, Washington, D.C., and then went straight through 24 hours. And it was kind of odd when we got to customs, like right before the train crossed the border, uh, we were delayed like an extra 45 minutes to an hour. So by the time I got to Montreal Central Station, um, they moved everything around. So they took a group and moved them up to Ottawa and moved us down. So they changed the platform. So I had this brilliant idea that um, I would go ahead, go to customs. We're now running an hour behind. Um, I was traveling with a female partner at the time and um, didn't like the idea of leaving her all alone on a park bench, you know, yeah. well, not a park bench, but a bench within the terminal. So I took two steps to the left and boom, the whole place exploded. It threw me in front of the doors and onto the ground. And I actually thought, it may sound bizarre, but I thought it was an earthquake. I thought it was going to swallow Montreal? me up. This is in Montreal. Wow. So I didn't know what happened. And um, so then your adrenaline kicks in and it's literally like the movie. You start moving people. I'm going into the area with trap metal flying around mm. and uh, everyone's trying to get to the exit. So I didn't know if my partner at the time um, was alive. So uh, luckily I found her alive. We grabbed each other and we made our way up, you know, onto the sidewalk to where um, people were, you know, ushered out by the authorities and you heard the uh, international sirens and so forth. And then later I found out that it was a pipe bomb. And um, so there was lives lost and, oh you know, God. several dozen injured. But uh, if I hadn't taken those two steps to the left to go back, um, you know, I could have been a casualty for sure. And this was a terrorist bombing, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they tried to kill all the Americans on the train. And um, so it was just, you know, one of those things that unfortunately the group from Ottawa got moved into our spot and then we got pushed back down. It's just, you know, one of those twists of fate. 
Wow. Well, maybe cancer was a piece of cake after that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm teasing. Uh, well, it, yeah, it, it has its own challenges <laughs> for sure. So, so tell us about that. You you survived this crazy train bombing. I'm pretty sure I've never spoken to anyone who has gone through something like that. That's crazy. And bring us up to date of you know when were you diagnosed with cancer? Did you have any symptoms? So take us back there. Um, healthy as a horse. Um, I'm six foot five, 240 pounds, you know, never really sick at all. Uh, in 2018, um, my PSA scores started spiking. So more tests were ordered. And then when those came back higher again, um, then, uh, the referral was made to urology. And so, um, it was probably mid to late, uh, 2018, the urologist said to me at the time, ah, I think we found something. And then he gave me two choices. I could do a very expensive 4K blood test, which would provide him with a risk score and percentage of you know, uh, potential uh, cancer. Uh, or I could do a very evasive, um, invasive rather, um, biopsy. So you know, I weighed the facts for about eight minutes and went with the expensive blood <laughs> 4K blood you test. You did? Yeah, did I did. You want the biopsy? No, at the at the time in 2018, um, maybe even leading up to that, uh, it, it was such a controversial thing that people were saying, "Don't do a biopsy, don't do it." And so I said, "Well, let me do the blood test." And of course, that came back. Um, my phone rang one Friday night. I'm like, "You know, why is XYZ Hospital in Los Angeles calling me?" And I completely forgot all about it. And the urologist, and then kind of a stoic tone said that I had a 70% chance that I had cancer. Then did so, you have to do the biopsy? Yeah, I had to do <laughs> the biopsy. <laughs> but, the, but the problem, Andrew, was that my insurance changed. I went from Blue Cross and Blue Shield, oh. and I was attending that famous hospital um, in, <laughs> in Los Angeles. And then I went to the unknown with an HMO uh, that I knew nothing about. So then, um, you know, I did the biopsy with the new set of doctors and, um, you know, didn't know what to expect, you know, kind of frightened. And I'm in the examination room at the most vulnerable, <laughs> you know, that you can be. And all of a sudden the urologist walked in with uh, what appeared to be four students and the nurse. <laughs> so were you at a teaching hospital? Uh, no, I was not at a teaching yeah. hospital, oh. but I guess I guess I was, you know, because they had a brand new um, biopsy machine that they were showing off. So I guess these were urologists um, from around, you know, maybe students, maybe not, don't know. And they were talking about me in the third person. And in um, front of you, mm -hmm, they were like, <gasps> see, here's the cancerous tumors here. And then see if you go over here. So I'm laying there at the most vulnerable I'd ever been in my entire life. And that's how I found out, you know, that I had cancer. Wait, that's how you found out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so I heard them gosh. talking. It, it, they were showing like, you know, this. So, you know, I did the post-op afterwards. But, you know, I had already had that emotional crash of, <sighs> you know, the worst possible thing the three words in the english language you do not want to hear you That's have cancer say. yeah you know so anyway in the post-op after that 
you know, it was my first introduction to the urology team. It's like, welcome aboard, you know, type thing. Um, but, you know, having the biopsy, in my opinion, did save my life because they detected stage three cancer. So tell us when they formally told you and you're meeting the whole team, what did they say about it? And what did they say your prognosis was? I hate that word, but, you know, and what was the treatment plan going to look like? Well, what happens is it's sort of a roller coaster ride. You know what I mean? If you are ever been to an amusement park and you go down that first hill, you don't remember turns three, four, five, and six. You remember the first hill because you're still recovering right. from that. So I heard radical robotic assisted prostatectomy. I remember the first time I wrote it down, I misspelled it. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm a pro. <laughs> And, and so what happened was, um, you know, all these things are thrown at you um, all at once. And, um, you know, you have a follow up prior, you know, to surgery. So months go by, you do, you know, what everyone tells you not to do, play Dr. Google, which I did, <laughs> of course, you know, you don't <laughs> listen to that, um, you know, snide voice in the back of your head saying it's a bad idea. You do it anyway, <laughs> so, you know, so, <laughs> so, you know, it made it worse. It's like, oh my God, am I going to die from anesthesiology, yeah. you know, administering something improperly by accident? Uh, you know, I, for the first time in my life, I was actually looking at mortality, you know, and that's frightening. You know, the other events, the, you know, being left for dead in the middle of the road in front of my whole family on 4th of July, <laughs> that's when I was five. And then the terrorist bombing, it was, you know, those weren't anything that um, I did, you know, that prevented it. It was just sheer luck on both ends and uh, thinnest of margins, but still sheer luck. Uh, but this was quite different. And, uh, you know, just something that, you know, everyone, you know, um, that has been diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, goes through. How much time went by between that diagnosis and the surgery? You said months, and that kind of surprises me. Yeah, I was sitting in the hospital getting ready for surgery and um, looking around and, you know, looking at this brand new multi-million dollar hospital that I'd been, you know, going to. And I, I remember the thought right then as I was sitting in the waiting room, it was 13 months to the day since the first um, uh, Whoa, urologist. What? Yeah. 13 months? To the day. You waited that long to have surgery? You were forced yep. to wait that long to have surgery? Yeah. Why? Well, because the um, <laughs> the medical system, you know, doesn't um, operate at the breakneck speed of my dreams or anyone else's dreams. It's like, okay, three, three months out and then you have a scheduling conflict and they go, oh, okay, no problem. Five months out then. And you go, okay, do you have anything? And they go, yeah, well, we can put you on the waiting list. And we go, yeah, that's sure. That's a unicorn. That's not going to happen. And so that's what happens. You go from 2018 to 2019. And, um, you know, so it was that whole year of falling in the cracks. So during that time, you're going back in and was anything being done? Were you given any medication? What, I mean, what? What were you told to do? So, um, yeah. So, so basically what happens is, um, you keep having follow-ups and they talk about things like, um, you know, nerve sparing, um, 
and and so it's a procedure that what they tried to do is um, the surgeon will go in and adds significant time onto the actual procedure itself. But that was the course. And my wife and I sat down and we went through everything. And um, we could tell, though, um, by the surgeon, by the way he explained everything that we did, you know, eventually have the right person. Okay. You know, um, even though I did harbor a, <laughs> harbor a grudge for a couple of months and yeah. you know, how, how I found out about my uh, diagnosis. But um, that's what happens with this healthcare system that, that, you know, that's sort of dumped on our laps is that you just become, you know, a file, you know, file number 1515. And, you know, sorry, we'll put you back here for four months from now. And, you know, that's the way it works. So you talked about ner nerve sparing as being a way that would have your uh, sexual recovery uh, much faster, you know. Um, and so, you know, you meet with um, the surgeon, um, your partner, and, you know, yourself. And um, so, I find that um, oh, this is this is a kicker for you. So months go by, and I get a phone call, and it's from the new the new hospital, and it's a scheduler. And she says, "Congratulations, you're now scheduled for your surgery." You know, so months you know leading up to that probably would have upended me, but now I was like, "Okay, I'm going to hit this running. Let's go get this out of me." You know. Um, What's the next step? So she said that there would be an appointment set up for my wife and I to sit down with a nurse and uh, they would go through recovery times, things of that nature. So I kid you not, Andrea, they roll out this like 1970s version TV set. Remember seeing like these um, sitcoms where they roll the TV set out? It's on metal wheels and, yeah. and everything. And so it had it had that kind of, I don't know. It must have been 90s, but it had kind of a 70s vibe to it. And Don't tell me they these... popped in a VHS tape. Don't tell me. I was people always ask me that. I want to say yes, but I I I have to give them credit and and say maybe it was a DVD. <laughs> 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 and so, oh, it was awful. So my wife and I look, I can see the steam coming from her, right? And so I'm like, I just close my eyes. I'm like, let me just get through this. So you had all of these unrealistic expectations. It's like, yeah, so-and-so, you know, he was up and raring to go and back to work within 24 hours and all this other stuff. I ended up being in the hospital for three and a half days. And so wow. uh, none of the um, lead up or none of the preparation, um, you know, was sound in my opinion. And it's, it's not just here. You know, I talked to people, I talked to a woman who works for cancer patients in Zimbabwe. And then I have um, people um, that um, I'm going to be speaking with uh, actually next week in um, Perth, Australia. And it doesn't matter where you are. It's the same stories over and over again. Now, I did see the oncologist very quickly, okay. which, is which is frightening because um, um I shouldn't say a favorite aunt, uh, a beloved aunt that I grew up with. Um, and my mom um, both died of cancer. And um, I had to see this towering figure of my aunt. You know, she was um, a bare-fisted brawler in heels, you know, <laughs> from Massachusetts. She negotiated, like, all these contracts and benefits for uh, employees and things of that nature. And then to see her, you know, beaten down from chemotherapy and 
wearing a wig. It just breaks your heart, you know? Yeah. So I had all of that going into the chemotherapy um, uh, appointment was very quick. And they uh, said that um, surgery was more the soup du jour, if you will, for me at that so time. So no chemotherapy? No chemo. Wow. How did you feel when you heard that? I relieved. Yeah. So RJ, tell us about the recovery from this surgery. What did that look like for you? Well, for me, um, my focus was on pre-op, you know, so I focused on everything I could to be healthier, change my diet, you know, get myself ready for the fight of my life leading up to it, where I dropped the ball was in post-op. Um, you know, I never really thought too much past the actual prostatectomy surgery. I just wanted, like you know, everyone else that came before me and just cut this stuff out, you know? Yeah. So what happens is you have an aftermath, you know? I actually couldn't, couldn't look while I was in the hospital. You know, it's just one of those things. Uh, if you played any kind of athletics, the last thing you want to do is look at, you know, an injury or things of that nature. It takes you a little time to work up to it. So you have bladder issues. Um, you have um, your your genitals are basically an unplugged refrigerator or microwave. Nothing works. Um, oh. uh, you know, so you're just in pain, um, things of that nature. Um, uh, there was one um, thing that I think still may haunt me down the road. Uh, when I was being discharged from the new hospital, um, they were putting compression socks on me. And okay. uh, that's something that you, you'll probably be prescribed by a urologist uh, if you're leaving. It just helps with blood clots, things of that nature. Sure. And um, so um, if you've ever tried to put a pair of new compression socks on, um, you know, you, you read the instructions, it says you and your team, you know, like, no, you're <laughs> so you know, you're in trouble, right? So right. one nurse jumped over to rescue my poor wife, you know, who was, who was struggling uh, to do this as anyone else would. And then another, um, nurse jumped in to help me get dressed. And, um, you know, I was evicted in lightning speed, although it took me eight hours to get a bed. <laughs> so, um, we didn't realize it. So my, we got home and I started leaking through my clothes and it looked like maple syrup. My wife, horror, you know? So I took, at the time it was cold. So I took my jacket off and it looked like maple syrup was pouring out of me. What? And so I took my shirt off and I found out that uh, they didn't close my, um, where the drain was. I just had a hole in my side. So, yeah, so my wife frantically calls up the nurse's station. They, they were wonderful. I mean, I'm giving you these like terrible stories, but for the most part, you know. But that's um, a big one. <laughs> it's, it's a big one. Yeah. It's a big one. I don't know what kind of bacteria I was exposed to. Uh, everyone missed it. I missed it. My wife missed it. The two nurses missed it. And uh, I ended up, um, you know, um, being told that, you know, don't worry about it, just bandage it up, keep it clean, it'll close on its own. So then um, I started having pains about six months later in my abdomen, and they right. thought it was kidney stones. So um, it's not too uncommon uh, to have what's called lymphocil. And um, it's a, if you've had a robotic uh, prostatectomy, 
uh, it's one of the risks that you 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 know take in in doing that type of surgery. And uh, the only thing is, I now get into the rare um, section because I still suffer from it all these years later. So, um, what, what is it? What is it? For it's it's um it's basically poison running through your body that looks like maple syrup. Remember that maple syrup yeah. that I described to you earlier? No. So what happens, mine settled as an abscess. And um, so um, here it is. I'm going to fast forward. It's now May of 2020. Okay. Okay. And while the whole world is looking to shelter somewhere and mm-hmm. avoid hospitals at all costs, Right. I now have to do what's called an aspiration where um, they go ahead and they do basically it's a, like a reverse uh, lumbar punch or spinal tap mm-hmm. and uh, drain the fluid out of you. So I've had a total of three of those so far. And, um, you know, oh my and, and, God. yeah, and still going. So, so that's why, um, you know, I look to share my experience uh, with people. And at first they were like, you know, tell me about this when, you know, you were a kid, you got hit by a car left for dead. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, what else happened? I'm like, Oh, terrorist bombing. And they're like, Oh, you know, uh, worst cancer experience, maybe, you know, um, that for me, I could experience, yeah. you know, I don't speak for anyone else, but myself, but, you know, so that's where we are today. And that's a risk because of, of that robotic. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's what's performed, um, around the world today. It's, it's the most successful method. And like any surgery, there are risks involved with, you know, the procedure and, um, it's usually asymptomatic, Mm. the lymphocyte and mine is symptomatic, you know, so, so yeah, so it seems like every February, let's see. So 2020, 2021, and then three weeks ago, I have the same symptoms reoccurring every single time. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? And mm-hmm. and you go and get it drained. That's just right. what they can do. Well, they, uh, yeah, what they do now is they, um, they'll do a CT scan just to make sure of like where everything is. And yeah. um, so this year, fortunately, um, it wasn't large enough for them to, to, uh, to do the aspiration, but you know, it still gives me a strep throat. It still gives me like almost COVID like, you know, symptoms. Tell me what the, what the no. sexual recovery was like. I guess like anything, you surround yourself in a circle. So you speak to other people. So um, when you're in your recovery, um, that's what you speak to all the time. Mm-hmm. And it becomes that language. Mm-hmm. So um, you speak to the urologist. And it's not so much like, congratulations, you just survived cancer surgery. It's like, okay, we're going to get you on a sexual um, rehabilitation program right away. And, you know, all of these different things. So um, four books later, I wrote about this. It was like, I wrote my first book, which was basically a memoir. Um, And then I wanted to touch on different subjects. So I wrote a second book. Uh, which is a journal. It's a clickable journal and an ebook, and it's also um, uh, a paperback. And I had to create my own journal and discover all of this stuff. And then it led to my third book, which is entitled "Pills, Pumps, and <laughs> Pelvic Floors." 
So that becomes your topic of conversation. That becomes your social circle. Mm -hmm. So you start talking about, um, you know, um, all these different things that are prescribed for you. So they start you off with Selenophil and they tell you right off the bat, they said, not going to work, you know, but if you take one, basically Viagra a day, the hope is that it'll regenerate the nerve endings and eventually it'll get you there. Um, then um, that doesn't really work. And a lot of countries outside of the US skip that step and go to the next step, which is injections. So uh, it makes people, especially, <laughs> especially men, kind of go up on the balls of their feet, you know, step on their toes a little bit, yeah. you know, because it's injecting, um, you know, something into your penis. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've told, you know, just watch a YouTube video. Wait, no yeah. one taught you how to do it? No, no. It was like oh, very expensive. And, and you have these syringes and everything. And there's also this thing, the correct term is a vacuum erection device. And um, so that is a story unto its own self. So um, I was told, um, you know, to meet at the urology department that this gentleman was going to come from the compounding pharmacy company, the insurance will pay for it, and he'll teach me how to do it. Right. So I, go, I had this thing in my mind, thank goodness it didn't end up the way I had it in my mind. <laughs> and so this guy opens everything up, couldn't look me in the eye, um, took it apart, assembled it like he was a soldier, um, you know, assembling and disassembling a weapon, put it back in the zipper bag. <laughs> I'm standing by like 11 minutes later, I'm by the elevator and I have no idea what just happened. So, oh, so this is what's happening out there for men. And there's, oh. there's so much that just goes unsaid. And um, it depends how you were raised. I'm not going to do a broad stroke for all men. But um, for me, I prefer female doctors. Um, so I can have a conversation with him. Uh, it's just my own personality. If I have yeah. a, a doctor, we're talking about things and we're buddies and you know, how do you feel? Oh, I feel great. How about you? Ah, oh, you look tired. Oh, oh. <laughs> yep. See you in three months, you know? So that's just me. So there's so much out there for men. Um, even someone, and you can take this out if you need to, uh, Andrew Lloyd Weber, um, in, in an article recently, uh, came out, um, cause he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and, and contemplated suicide. So, wow. you know, it, it, you, oh, we'll you have, have this link to that article. Oh. Yeah, you you um, have this internal struggle. Um, your mind and your body are constantly at, at war with themselves. So I had to learn how to figuratively separate the two, like um, two children fighting on the playground, and understand that your mind is one thing and your body is another thing, and uh, that keeps you on on the correct path. And so it, it may sound simple, but it, it's really not. And depression comes in. So if you sure. have sexual dysfunction, it can affect your partner. It can affect your spouse. It can affect your self-worth. So that's, that's why it's important. If there's such a psychological factor involved. And then there's also the testing. They're finding younger and younger men today wow. that, are, that are being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Before it was... Um, 
maybe you should do it at 65. Then it became right. 60. And, um, um, you know, now they're, you know, I'm advocating for 45, you know, what does it hurt? Yeah. It's a blood test, yeah. you know, and, um, uh, different parts of the world have higher rates, um, still unknown. And, um, you know, it could be processed meats, it could be, you know, certain diets, but sure. there's still no one thumbprint that you can go back to. Right. And, uh, so, so that's why, you know, I decided to, you know, write books and, and things of that nature and try, try to, um, explain my adventure. I call it an adventure as opposed to a journey. Now, a lot of prostate cancer patients and survivors will suffer from ED. It's not, um, you know, um, the end all to be all, but right. it, it, it is one of maybe eight or 10 warning signs that there's something wrong. Yeah. And so that's why testing is important. Um, you know, screening, it's just, it's just a blood test to check your, you know, PSA levels. Yeah. And, um, if they start spiking, you know, have that biopsy. You know. Yeah. Right away. Mm -hmm. What was your worst moment in, to use your word, adventure in this adventure? <laughs> um, sitting in an eight foot by eight foot broom closet in uh, May of 2020. Um, no one was going to their hospital appointments. They weren't taking heart attack patients. But yet here I was sitting on a bench in this broom closet getting undressed. And I heard a knock at the door. And they said, Mr. Wyndham. And I said, yes. You can't leave. We found something in the CAT scan and we just called your doctor. So, so that was, <laughs> so that was, that was when they found the lymphocil. Um, but I thought at the time I said, it's spread outside of my body. Cause that's yeah. one thing that you do not know. Even after the surgery, they hope that they got it all, right. but there's no telling whether the cancer had spread outside. And I was certain you know, when I got that news, that knock at the um, changing room uh, door, that they had found more cancer, but they did not. So even though it was this other thing, it was almost a relief. Mm -hmm. It was. Yeah. Yeah. What about your best moment? Best moment was finishing um, my first book. Tell us about that. Um, it's painful. It's hard. It's challenging. I'm trying to think of some more adjectives that I can <laughs> <say. You know? laughs> because there's kind of a different, if, um, you're going to sit down and write a fantasy book like J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, and you create all these wonderful characters and everything that's inspiring to sit there. And every time you rewrite something and you reread a chapter, you just, you know, cut yourself open again yeah. and then again and again. So actually finishing that uh, was probably my best moment. What is one thing you wish you'd known at the very beginning of this cancer adventure? How difficult post op is mm. a lot of the focus in the beginning is, am I going to die from cancer? You know, right. how do I do this? Um, how, how do I prevent things from happening? Will I have the surgery? When is the surgery? So your whole focus is on, basically, I became, um, you know, a detective, uh, Sherlock Holmes. I was looking <laughs> for clues. What, right. what caused this? And then we're human, so we want to assign blame to someone or something. 
So I was going to be, you know, determined to find out who that culprit was, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And so, you know, my my thing was that I didn't focus enough on recovery. And and that's such a key thing. I heard a breast cancer survivor, the way she phrased it once was she wish she said she wished she had known that it was a slog, that no one told her that. Mm this was going to be a way of life for a very long time. And, and she said, I just wish I know. And I could have mentally prepared myself a little bit more for it. Now, what I found interesting is that I have a shared kinship um, with breast cancer uh, survivors uh, because we go through a similar thing, especially if you've had a mastectomy. Yeah. You just want to go back to where you were originally, whatever that was, whatever yeah. felt, you know, whatever you had previously that made you 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 feel less than whole and that's how a man feels a man wants to go back in the same Mm -hmm. way as a breast cancer survivor would um in the way that man was whole and um that's that's where the challenge you know comes in the fork in the road if you will yeah wow well gosh i have no idea what your answer is going to be to this if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? I'm going to remove healthcare for all um, as my statement because that's an easy one. Um, I would say that through my experience, I was able to separate the bureaucratic system from the people that operate within it. Before, when I first got started, I saw everything as one whole. Mm-hmm. So when I see hospitals now, I just see them as a factory. You know, a place where three shifts of people work, where they go home and go about their business. Right. The, bureau, the bureaucratic part is the thing that I'm focused on. And, and I started looking into it. And at some point in time here in the U.S., we went away from um, the nurse um, staff ran everything. Right. And then over time, um, it became more accounting more billing more um you know bottom line more um you know money oriented and uh, if we could go back to the original system where it was healthcare and you know patient first over insurance and billing and accounting um you know that would be my answer wow huh that's very that's very well said and yeah, they're they're in many ways cogs in a wheel, and mm-hmm. yeah, they they're sometimes limited by by what they can do. Of course, and yeah. their time with patients is limited as well. You <sighs> might have fifteen minutes, you might have twenty minutes, and that's it. And then we'll see you in another three months. I think this is the one area area where COVID helped because that fast forward shift, I mean, shift just your throat in it to telehealth that had to be implemented right away mm-hmm. was really beneficial to some people. I think that that's one of the best things that came out of an awful situation. Yeah. You know, before we go to Thrive Rapid Fire, what do you think was the hardest part for your wife? Um, I remember a moment when I was sitting uh, to go into surgery and I looked at my wife and I saw circles under her eyes looked almost purple. Mm -hmm. So you realize that, you know, 
what a, what a jerk. You know, I should have been spending more attention for her instead of worrying about myself. So what happens is partners or patients suffer sometimes, in my opinion, more than the actual, you know, person that they're caring for. And uh, so, so it's hard. It's, it's everything. It's your relationship. It's, um, it's the uh, not knowing what to do next. It's uh, something that's not uh, a female physical body that you go, well, you know, I had these issues so I can relate to, to my partner. Well, my partner has, you know, different, different, you know, mechanisms and different, right. you know, plumbing and things of that nature. So you have to give yourself um, a PhD in that 13 months, you know, so it, it's really hard. And I was fortunate that, you know, I have a partner that's been there every step of the way and made 99.9, you know, percent of my visits and appointments and things of oh, that nature. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you are very lucky. Are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire? I certainly am. Okay. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Best band ever, Beatles. <laughs> what is one word that best describes you? Uh, tenacious. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Wonderful World. I love that song. It was oh the first, first song I ever danced with my wife to. Really? Oh, gosh. What about the last meal you want to eat? Anything that she would cook. <laughs> and the last person or people you'll see family and the last words you will speak au revoir oh and aside from cancer you what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers um everything okay. be be a sponge um i i have a website it's um rj windham with a nine w-i-n-d-h-a-m.com and i have a section under resources and it's resources oh, all over the world so it goes from south africa to ontario canada to here in the u.s and all parts in between oh wow and tell us if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way and how can they find your books um rj at rjwindham.com that's w-i-n-d-h-a-m and if you go to the website you'll see everything there now um at the time of this recording um it's um not quite completed yet but it's probably about 90 percent of the way there and then we go live um uh, mid-april of okay. 2020 so. your website goes live it's live now oh, but okay. um i'm not happy with it you know oh. i'm gonna keep <laughs> I'm going to keep tinkering and, and, you know, working, working <laughs> but it's there. You can see all my books. You can, Good. you can leave me a voicemail message. Uh, I actually on my website. So, Oh, wow. That's very cool. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We'll make sure we'll put links in, in the show notes to everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, RJ, thank you so much for. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Coming on. I want to, I want to thank you for all the work that you do too. Uh, oh, thank what, you. What you do is just, you know, you can't put a, a price on it. So thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, 
cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.